Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. In early February, 38 cars of a Norfolk Southern freight train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. They were carrying hazardous materials. These materials were subsequently burned, causing dramatic images of black clouds billowing high into the skies above. In the weeks following this accident, local and national attention has focused on myriad questions, from the potential health and environmental impacts of this accident, to who caused it, and ultimately, to who is responsible both for causing the accident and for compensating those harmed by it. And, of course, this fits into a broader ongoing discussion about regulation of railroads, railroad safety, and regulation generally. To help us sort through these issues, I'm joined today by an expert on transport regulation, Mark Scribner. I work at Reason Foundation on the transportation team as a senior transportation policy analyst. Mark is going to help us to understand the various aspects of what happened in East Palestine, as well as the challenges and trade-offs inherent in railroad regulation generally. Our focus today, and the reason that we asked you to join us, is the recent East Palestine rail incident accident. I don't know the proper terminology. That's why we've invited you here to help educate myself and our listeners about this incident and the regulatory and technological uh, backdrop perhaps behind it. Could you start just for listeners, can you tell us what happened, just the, the factual situation here? Sure. So on February 3rd, there was a a freight train operated by Norfolk Southern Railway. It was 149 cars, and it derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, near the Pennsylvania border. Of the 38 cars that left the track, 11 were tank cars carrying hazardous materials. The concern really happened when the crew got out of the locomotive cab and saw fire and smoke. And that fire caused by the derailment also ignited an additional dozen cars that hadn't derailed. Fortunately, the crew was able to decouple the lead locomotives and flee a mile east. While they were doing that, emergency responders showed up on the scene, began fighting those fires and uh, instituted a mile radius evacuation zone uh, surrounding the accident sites. Following that, so on that was on February 3rd in the evening. On February 5th, they'd gotten the fires under control, they'd been extinguished, but emergency responders had noticed that the temperature was still rising in a tank car carrying about 115,000 gallons of vinyl chloride, which is a very toxic industrial substance used in all sorts of plastics. So it's a very vital substance, but very toxic. You don't want to get near that. And that rising temperature, despite the fires no longer being present, indicated that there was a chemical reaction taking place within the tank car. So they got very concerned that there was going to be a dangerous explosion. Um, And in an explosion of a vinyl chloride car, you're not only worried about the toxic plume that would result, but also the shrapnel. So that led them, the the emergency responders, 
to expand that evacuation zone to two miles. And then what they did is they manually emptied those five tank cars of concern into containment ditches adjacent to the rail, the track, and then burned it. That's the proper protocol in this kind of situation. And this being a toxic substance, there have been reasonable concern of uh, groundwater contamination, of, of other environmental hazards like um, impacts on wildlife, pets, and there, there seems to have been some, some of those. But fortunately, there, there were not any reported injuries or fatalities, at least initially among the, the crew, the residents of the area, and the emergency responders. That's sort of the setup of what happened. And boy, oh boy, what a setup it is. There are so many issues that we can and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to get into from responsibility for causing this, whether someone was at fault, who was at fault, is it a regulatory issue and what's not, to the response itself. And this has certainly been in the news a great deal. And if you've seen any of the images, I saw one image that was taken from an airplane that kind of looked like a nuclear bomb had gone off. And it just the optics. It looks absolutely terrible. Before we get into any of that, however, it's my understanding that the NTSP, National Transportation Safety Board, has in the last couple of days released an initial assessment or report on this incident. Have you had a chance to look at that? And can you tell us what it says? Yeah. So the preliminary report from the NTSB that came out on, on February 23rd, it details sort of the chain of events there, what was leading up to that derailment. While they have yet to determine a cause, that isn't something that they would suggest in a preliminary report. They did find, after reviewing both wayside hot bearing detectors and security camera footage, that a bearing on at least one of the car wheels had overheated. And so... According to this preliminary report, the temperature of a bearing had been rising steadily over three hot bearing detectors. Can you just explain what is a hot bearing detector? So a hot bearing detector, they use usually infrared, and it's basically a sensor pointed up from the track at the level of where the wheel bearing sits on a moving rail car. And uh, it does exactly what it sounds like. It measures the temperature because hot bearing failures are a common mechanical failure in the railroad industry and have been for a long time. And they've been using these wayside detectors, gosh, for uh, 70, 80 years now. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a common safety device uh, that you find on U.S. railroads. It had passed two of those wayside detectors, those hot bearing detectors, but it hadn't reached a critical level yet. And, but by the time it hit the third detector, it had exceeded that critical level and that triggered an automatic alert in the rail cab instructing the crew to halt the train. So they began applying the brakes as is the, the proper procedure, at least this is according to the, the NTSB report. While they were applying the brakes, um, you know, trains don't stop on a dime. They, <laughs> they take a while to stop, especially a 150-car train. While they were applying the brakes, the emergency brakes kicked in. And what that means is, the, so trains 
have the brakes that are controlled by the crew to sort of manually apply pressure when when they want to bring it to a stop. But the being air brakes and air brake technology has been around since, you know, immediately following the Civil War. Basically, you've got a, a long hose that runs connecting all the cars on the train with the air brake system. And if that is disconnected, it depressurizes and automatically goes into full stop. So while they were doing the manual braking to bring it to uh, the train to a halt, the emergency brakes kicked in. And what that means, it hasn't been determined yet, but it strongly suggests that the train had already derailed because when, you know, when hmm. trains derail, they tend to yank out those brake hoses and initiate the, the automatic emergency braking. So it is likely by the time they were aware that the bearing had reached a critical temperature and was at risk of failure, that the train was already derailing. So many questions, but I'm, I'm going to start with a, an observation. Mechanical systems fail and are dangerous. And actually, the, the reason that I say this is this is a, a hot bearing that we're talking about. And I know a thing or two about bearings. I, I was um, not too long ago actually doing some interviews and talking to some folks here in Nebraska at a grain elevator. So uh, one of those big silos that you store grain and these things move tons and tons, literally, of corn and other grain in minutes. And they do this by conveyor belts, which have bearings. And one of the things that they pointed out time and again was all of the sensors, the heat sensors on all the bearings that they have. Because when you're dealing with corn and other grains, you get a lot of dust that's highly flammable. It's in the air. It's explosive. And if a bearing overheats, you get an explosion. It's one of the most common causes of uh, accidents in this area. And it's a, a very similar sort of failure mode there. So uh, re really interesting, just from that perspective, a bearing. I, we think of these as small, little, cheap, spinny things that we rely on constantly, and they don't fail, do they? But no, they do. <laughs> right. And and, and I, I want to be clear that, you know, the NTSB has not pinpointed the cause of the derailment as this bearing failure, but that is where the investigation is heavily focused on that at the moment, for obvious reasons, because they have they were able to obtain pretty clear evidence that they had a they had a very hot bearing, uh, mm -hmm, and they yeah. know what happens once you reach those critical temperatures. Um, but before we get into a bit of the regulatory response and issues, you said that this train it was 149 cars. Is that a big train, a small train? That's it's it's a typical length in modern times in the United States. You know, the, the train length has been increasing over time, in large part, you know, to increase asset utilization, keep costs down. You know, the railroads are tend to be very cost focused because that's their primary advantage over their main competitors in the trucking industry. You know, trucks can go quickly point to point, railroads can't, but railroads can move a lot of stuff pretty quickly. So the focus on, on optimization 
of their assets is a, a constant focus of, of the rail industry. And what about the materials that this train was carrying? I, I know here in Nebraska, we have a lot of trains that we see carrying just 100 cars of coal east to west or west to east. I expect that the thought, the idea that a train might be carrying, in addition to that coal, some cars full of vinyl chloride or something else is alarming to a lot of folks. So what sort of materials do trains typically carry? How unlikely is it for this sort of material to be on a, any given train? So it really depends. When you're talking about a, a just coal train or just any other commodity group train, that's called a, a unit train. This was a manifest train, so it had mixed cargo. And that information isn't public. What's on any particular train, we really only know about of those 149 cars, you had about two dozen hazmat tank cars on there. And that's been the focus of the investigation and of the public concern for obvious reasons. Like you said, I mean, these carry hazardous materials on train They're You know, they call them hazardous materials for a reason. They're, they're very dangerous. You've got vinyl chloride. You've got uh, hydrochloric acid. You've got all sorts of stuff that you would not want to get near your person. The good news is, is that moving hazardous materials by rail is the safest by far surface transportation mode, far safer than trucks, which also move a lot more hazardous materials. So if you got th these materials because of our, you know, our modern lives, we depend on all of these nasty industrial substances to make the products that we enjoy and to do things like, you know, this is how they move chlorine that keeps our drinking water safe to drink. So we need these toxic chemicals. Uh, you just do not want to get up close and personal with them. And usually you don't have to. They, they have uh, pretty, pretty aggressive safety hazardous material handling procedures to minimize that risk. Yeah, it, it's such an important point. We hear stories like this and we think, why in the world were they transporting these chemicals? Why do we need these chemicals? Can't we not use these chemicals? And no, well, we, we could. But most people wouldn't want to live in the world without those chemicals because they enable so many of the things that we depend on in modern life. And it's a trade-off. And it's impossible to get that trade-off exactly right. It's something that we as consumers don't think about, but that uh, regulators do think about. So let's actually transition to what is the regulatory perspective on this or who regulates these modes of transportation and the carriage of hazardous materials like these? So when you're on rail or, or any mode of transportation, you've got your, your basic modal safety regulator at the federal level. So in the case of rail, that's the Federal Railroad Administration. In the case of trucks, that's the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. But when it comes to hazardous materials, there's a, there's a separate agency at the Department of Transportation called the the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. And those are really the regulations at issue here. Not only do they prescribe very detailed requirements on how to handle this, those these requirements, they're subject to common carrier requirements as well. So it's not even if the railroads did not want to move these substances, they're required by law to. In addition to the basic common carriage requirements, Pipelines and Hazardous Material Safety Administration has regulations on how quickly 
this must move. And uh, there's a, you know, one example, it's called the 48 hour rule. You basically got to get this on the next train and get it moved. Once it arrives at the origin pickup location, it's got to be moved to the destination in 48 hours, get out on the next train available. And the reason for that is to minimize public exposure to these substances. So these substances tend to be safest when they're at either the production facilities, and a lot of these substances tend to be made on site and then used in industrial processes there. But when they have to ship them to a, a separate facility, to do the, you know, whatever kind of manufacturing they're doing or for drinking water, chlorination, they have to move this quickly. And it's because the, you know, we've all been out to railroad tracks. They're wide open. I mean, it's technically it's private property Mm -hmm. and you're a trespasser uh, (laughs) if you go on that. And the railroads really do not like you going on their tracks, but you see people Ne'er do well, teenagers uh, hanging out by the the <laughs> railroad the tracks yep. and, and things like that. So you want to get these uh, once they get get on the rails. You want to get them off as quickly as possible. So that I think is is something that whenever people are talking about the regulation of the movement of hazardous materials, we have to keep that in mind. Is there, the railroads are not only required to carry these things, they're required to move them very quickly. What sort of training do railroad employees and the operators on individual trains, what training do they have to handle these sort of materials? Well, they're all trained in their various roles in, in handling this. So it would be, if you're if you're working in a rail yard, you know, what to do. There's all, a lot of it is also notification, letting people know that this is what they're carrying so that they can fall back on their training to deal with these. Now, the locomotive crews driving the trains, they are not going to be the responders in a hazardous material spill. They have specialized teams who go in and handle that. You also have public agencies, fire and EMS departments have hazardous materials training in large part because we have we have quite a few hazardous material truck accidents that they have to go out and deal with on the highways fairly regularly not you know in the grand scheme of things not that regularly but it happens a lot more than than rail so there's there are a lot of people trained in both the at both the carriers but also in public agencies what to do in the event that the worst case happens Specific training depends on the particular role, but training is, uh, there's a strong emphasis on it. And does it matter what state this happens in, or it's my understanding and my geography could be off on this, but that this was near the state border. How do the states play into the regulation of transportation of these materials? So these are, you know, this is interstate traffic. So you're generally looking at a, a federal jurisdiction here. However, you know, in the event of a of an accident, you're going to have a local response. So there has to be coordination there. And you get coordination from both, uh, in the case of a railroad, both the dispatch office that will alert both their internal hazardous materials crews, uh, response crews, and the, uh, the local public agencies, state public agencies, to make sure they're there, in addition to the federal teams. Because, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, when when something like this happens, it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation. Mm -hmm. So coordination, that's another thing with uh, emergency response training, 
It's all about making sure everyone who needs to know knows and knows quickly uh, because, you know, time is of the essence in responding to these kinds of accidents in order to minimize, you know, exposure to the public. Uh, speaking of coordination, the EPA, do they play a role? Yeah, the, the environmental, uh, federal and state environmental agencies will play a role. Um, right now, you've got a uh, an aggressive environmental force on the ground there now doing the kind of ambient air testing, doing the kind of water quality testing that was initiated by the Norfolk Southern Railway and the states. But you've got that, you know, you have all of those folks trying to cover every aspect of the accident. And they're all they're all specialized in in what they do. Mm-hmm. In the days and weeks following this accident, I think it's fair to say there was a lot of finger pointing, both at the railway operator in particular, their refusal to show up at a local community meeting, also the regulatory response. And I've been seeing discussion in the news, a a lot of defensiveness on the part of the Biden administration. Oh, we had people there on the ground within two hours, or did they? And I I think as well as argumentation going on between the Department of Transportation and other departments, or at least uh, I've certainly seen a lot of Secretary Buttigieg in the news on this topic. Is it inevitable that when something bad like this happens, one of the immediate responses is going to be defensiveness and finger pointing? Or is there something about this incident that has led to that sort of response in particular? No, I don't think it's inevitable because usually when we've seen much more severe hazardous materials accidents in the past and there is no press coverage, you know, your state and national politicians are not, you know, mugging for the camera, trying to score political points. This is unique in that we have this very unusually heightened sense of awareness of this particular accident. And I honestly don't know why that happened. I I have some guesses because immediately following this, you had various folks who have long been grinding axes uh, come out and demagogue. Um, And it was from both the left and the right, among politicians, pundits, activists, everyone was trying to score their points even before uh, we had any idea what might be a likely cause of this accident. And I think that's that's really a problem because you can't suggest a regulatory response, as we've seen, you know, <laughs> many re- uh, calls for more aggressive regulation and all sorts of different issues without knowing what you're responding to. And right now, we still really don't know uh, what the cause of the accident is. So, I I mean, I think everything, these calls for drastic policy changes just aren't backed up by the the kind of Mm -hmm. evidence you need to make those informed decisions. I I think we will have that information, but not not in the immediate future. These these investigations take many months. Is there... Any myth debunking that you want to do or that you can do for things that people are pointing to today that clearly aren't part of the equation? Yeah, there's I mean, there's there's a few that have stood out to me, um, probably the biggest. And it's it's died down a little bit for a reason I'll I'll explain. 
but there was initially, there was a, a lot of talk in the press about uh, the rescission of Obama-era requirements on uh, uh, what are called electronically controlled pneumatic brakes or ECP brakes by the Trump administration. And you had people say, well, this is obviously the the cause of this derailment because they they got rid of these these regulatory requirements. When in fact, I mean, there's there's a few problems with that narrative. One, these 2015 requirements were heavily criticized by rail carriers as, as having costs that exceeded the benefits. But then in the 2015 uh, multi-year surface transportation authorization, better known as the, the highway bill, they also do railroads, they included a section, Congress included a section that ordered studies on the Department of Transportation's regulatory impact analysis from both the Government Accountability Office and the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies. In addition, Congress also required the Secretary of Transportation uh, to reanalyze the benefits and costs of those requirements based on this uh, revised expert input and to repeal the ECP break requirements if it was determined that the costs exceeded the benefits. Well, it turns out both the Government Accountability Office and the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies found major flaws with uh, the Department of Transportation's original regulatory impact analysis. After the department reanalyzed based on this, these new inputs, they found that the costs exceeded the benefits and as required by the law, the Department of Transportation uh, rescinded the ECP break uh, requirements in uh, 2018. But I think, you know, here, knowing what those ECP break requirements are is really important because even if, the, the ECP break rule had withstood that congressionally ordered scrutiny, it wouldn't have applied to this train. And that's because the, the you know, this, this train didn't have a consist with enough hazardous materials cars to trigger those repealed requirements. And, you know, this led this, this, I mean, so it's, it's false on its face, bringing up the ECP rule as somehow being implicated in this derailment. And, even before the NTSB preliminary report came out, the chair, Jennifer uh, Hamadi, took the rare uh, uh, step of going on Twitter and debunking uh, these claims, <laughs> uh, something I've never seen before. You know, the NTSB is, is generally a pretty, you know, they behave very conservatively and deliberately. Usually they, you don't see the chair going on Twitter uh, debunking uh, specific allegations uh, regarding an accident, especially prior to the release of a preliminary accident report. So that was that was a sight to be seen. I would say that's that's probably the biggest one. You saw another Twitter blow up between Secretary Buttigieg and uh, Senator Marco Rubio over automated track inspection technology. This isn't an. This doesn't appear to be infrastructure related. Uh, an infrastructure related derailment. So bringing up ATI, automated track inspection tech, doesn't make any sense. But uh, uh, Senator Rubio did actually have the better point, which was that the the Federal Railroad Administration under President Biden has cracked down on the use of ATI, even though. 
the regulators have acknowledged that it provides much more accurate inspections than than traditional human visual inspections. And the reason is, I mean, the one comment in response to these these waivers was coming from the union uh, that represents the the manual track inspectors um, who don't like the the robo competition, which is a, a fairly common issue in <laughs> transportation mm-hmm. and automation right now. You know, I think Rubio had the better point there. He didn't, you know, neither of them behaved very well. Uh, it was pretty testy uh, and and rude, both of them, uh, on Twitter, as, as Twitter uh, tends to promote. And then uh, I guess if there's one more that I think is just kind of out there, that is, and you saw this in a bill that, that Marco Rubio just yesterday sponsored, uh, introduced by a handful of Senate populists called the uh, of both parties called the Railway Safety Act of of 2023, and one thing and one major thing in there is that it would require minimum train crew sizes of two crew members, and this is the the top priority mm-hmm. of railway unions. They do not want automated trains, even though f- the the Federal Railroad Administration they're currently also trying to pursue this on their own through the rulemaking process. Even though they admit they have no statistical evidence supporting the claim that two-person crews are safer than one-person crews or vice versa, they're moving ahead because this is a railway labor top priority. Mm -hmm. But this train had three crew members on it. So, you know, saying we need this this two-person crew mandate doesn't really make a lot of sense here. <laughs> so that that was actually what my next question was going to be. Over the last year, we've heard a whole lot about labor disputes within the railway industry. There have been a, a couple of very near nationwide railroad strikes and how this incident might affect those discussions. I think you just answered that question. It sounds like it shouldn't because this incident actually exceeded the number of crew members that we've been talking about, but it will because we're in a political world and we're already seeing uh, legislation introduced to uh, respond to some of those concerns. Right. Before the causes are even determined, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is unfortunate. I think the good news is, despite I think that, you know, that populist bill's you know, sort of unfortunate recommendations that aren't supported by the the facts. The current, the both Democratic and Republican chairs in the Senate and House of the committees of jurisdiction have called for a calming of the of the mm-hmm. dialogue on this. So I hope that cooler heads are able to prevail, that they're able to do the kind of basic fact finding that they ought to do before proceeding with any particular regulatory changes. So we'll see. So trains are not exactly new technology. We've had the basic idea of a train for a a long time, but we have a lot of new technology that we can leverage in this industry. You mentioned a couple of examples, but automated track inspection is one. Certainly things like bearing overheat uh, uh, monitors, that's a technology-based safety tool. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what's going on in the world of train-related technology, safety technology perhaps especially, but if there are other interesting things going on in the field that might affect the operation of trains. Yeah, so I think that the, like with a lot of modes of transportation, there is a ton of interest in automation technology, both in the, the automated track inspection side of things, but also train automation. So you could have, you know, called driverless trains. 
And we have a few international examples of that technology. Probably the most famous is a um, trains in Western Australia owned by the Rio Tinto mining conglomerate that haul big unit trains of iron ore from the mines to ports for export. That has been in operation for a few years now. Um, there's also some some pilots ongoing in, in Europe looking at that. Uh, but where we are in terms of the, the state of the technology today, so under legislation that Congress passed in 2008, railroads were required, uh, it was an unfunded multi-billion dollar mandate to install a suite of communications and automation technologies, lower level automation technologies, uh, called positive train control. And that's designed to prevent certain types of, of derailments and crashes from occurring. Since then, and that really, once they had that unfunded mandate uh, forced on them, that really got the railroads interested in how could we leverage these technologies to develop more efficient business practices. Mm -hmm. So out of that, probably the, the, the thing that you see in use right now is energy management technology, which is basically uh, cruise control. And it's a, it's, so it's an automation technology, lower level, but it is basically designed to save fuel. Mm -hmm. It is quite possible, sort of out of the box right now, basically anyway, to control a lot more functions of the train with that technology and reduce on some routes, on some trains, the crew size to two to one. So that is where you get this the the kind of the labor opposition because they they are aware that technology that they've experienced could be pretty easily modified very slightly to reduce crew size. And I think it's important to remember here too is that unlike, you know, this isn't like a commercial airliner where you've got two sets of controls for the captain and the first officer, there's one set of controls on a rail locomotive. So in principle, mm. you don't need a second person there to really do anything, um, especially if you can automate a lot of those tasks. So that's where we are today. We're not at the stage where we can have these fully automated trains go down to zero crew members, but that's obviously something the railroad industry is interested in long-term to reduce operating costs. So I think, you know, they would like to be able to pursue that over the, the coming decades. Um, the question is, is will federal regulators allow them to do so, or are they going to have this inflexible crew size mandate that basically kills the incentive to even invest in those technologies? How much information about the industry is public? This is a form of critical infrastructure. There are, I expect, national security concerns with understanding how we move cargo, where trains are, what trains are going to be operating, when and where, what they're carrying. At the same time, I expect a lot of people live near train tracks. Uh, certainly, I'm in the Midwest, and most towns are where train tracks are, because that's where we needed to have people um, not that many decades ago. So you can hear, you can see trains going through town. And I expect a lot of people have thought, hey, I wonder who is operating that train. I wonder what it's carrying, if it's dangerous to me. Is that sort of information available? Should it be available? So uh, uh, some information is available to some people at some times. So <laughs> Great generally, answer. though, for, for the public, though, uh, generally no. And there's, you know, there's good reason you would not, for instance, while, you know, a lot of people at, at sort of first glance, 
might think, well, wouldn't it be great to know that there's this train full of toxic materials heading through my backyard? Well, that's also what once that information's public, anyone has that, and then you suddenly have a, a not very quickly moving target. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the whatever sort of envisioned safety benefits of that also have to contend with the security costs, risks, and the resulting safety costs of if if there is some kind of malicious attack or something like that. So that's often these discussions are very, they don't move very quickly because there are so many concerns about this information. In terms of general traffic information, I mean, a lot of that's proprietary info. You know, you wouldn't want to give your customers their cargo data away. And when they tend to release this, and this is, you know, you see this in sort of economic regulatory proceedings at the Surface Transportation Board, which is the what remains of the Interstate Commerce Commission. They do release sort of under seal waybill with the so cargo samples to let people, to let economists mm-hmm. analyze that traffic data and competitive interactions and, and, and things like that. So um a lot of it's closely guarded for a variety of reasons, but uh, I, I do suspect that disclosure requirements are going to be top of mind among uh, members of Congress who are talking about this and regulators as well. But there is, you know, there is a, a very important balancing that has to take place there. So we are starting to come up near the end of our time. Going back to East Palestine. What comes next? How do you foresee this playing out over the coming, I expect, weeks, months, and even years? Well, I think the immediately what you're what you're going to see there now is you're going to see this continued environmental and health testing to assure the residents that it is safe to to be there. There is a lot of you know understandable concern given the release of these these toxic substances nearby that it is not safe. So that kind of monitoring is going to take place probably for for years in some form, uh, but at least in the near term to try to identify immediate hazards, mitigate them. That's going to be a top focus. The NTSB has already been shipping the remnants of this accident to the their facilities for further analysis. The NTSB, these are excellent accident investigators. They are very thorough. But that thoroughness comes with a time cost. So we are likely, it'll likely be months and months before we are able to get a more definitive answer on the the actual causes of this derailment, at which point you would then, in my view anyway, potentially be in a place where it would be more appropriate to look at any policy changes that might be might be desirable. But I think that, you know, the biggest challenge is just is just the patience required. And, you know, politicians especially, not very patient people. Uh, <laughs> and also the, the people of East Palestine um, who are living there, I understand they want to be assured now if it's safe to be in their own homes. But unfortunately, it's going to, it, a lot of this is going to take time. So I, I hope mm-hmm. that, you know, people can, it seems to have calmed down a little bit since the two weeks immediately following the derailment, but I, I hope people can keep their heads cool and just let this play out as it will. But yeah, it's going to take some time. 
Well, Mark Scribner from The Reason Foundation, thank you for taking some time today to uh, chat with me and help to provide some background understanding of this really unfortunate situation. And knowledge is power and understanding helps us confront the world boldly and bravely without fear. And you've helped us do that today. Right. Thank you for having me, Gus. It was my pleasure. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleegey is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC. NGTC.